find 1 Samuel 7 in your Bible. Stand with me. Let's read these three verses together. 1 Samuel 7, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. And we'll see how significant that summary really is when we get to it. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you this morning that uh, you are a great and mighty God, and that uh, we, uh, by your grace, have been called and redeemed of you, that you have uh, allowed us to be a part of of your eternal family. And Lord, we have the privilege of serving you. We have the privilege of worshiping you. And Lord, we are so grateful to you for our salvation. We know that we don't deserve it. We uh, We can't earn it in any way, but it's all by your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for it again. Uh, Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, we think about the sacrifice of Christ. We think about uh, his suffering on our behalf. And we think of uh, the incredible, amazing love that sent Christ to the cross to die in our place. And so, Lord, we rejoice. We, uh, we worship. We express our gratitude to you this morning. Lord, our desire is to be a people that is pleasing to you, a people that is walking uh, according to your will and uh, following the principles of your word. And, uh, Lord, we ask for your wisdom in that regard. But, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your truth. You've given us your Holy Spirit to uh, illuminate, illuminate it to our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that this morning. We worship. We praise you. And, Lord, we ask that you would work in our in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had never really considered something like this, but one commentator on 1 Samuel talked about the early years of their marriage when his wife was given a whole chicken. And although she was an excellent cook and had often fried or baked chicken, Up to this point, it had always been cut into its respective pieces. She was totally perplexed. She had no idea how to chop up a whole chicken. She asked herself and then her husband if there was an orthodox way, to those in the know, by which a chicken should be dismembered. She finally ended up asking a neighbor who grew up on a farm. This country girl laughed and then told her how to do it. Eventually, she was able to prepare chicken for the evening meal. Now, why am I talking about chickens? Because many times when it comes to deciding where to divide books of the Bible it can be as perplexing as dividing a whole chicken. And I think most of us would say that biblical material is more important than chickens. But the truth of the matter is, there is a right way of dividing Scripture. 
And if a certain biblical writer or editor cuts his material at particular points or joints, we should note and respect that. In fact, as we introduce our summer study of 1 Samuel this morning, we need to understand where the divisions come, and we need to follow the clues that are given in the text for those divisions. We're not really going to be getting into the text of the book this morning, but we're going to introduce it today, and then we'll move into it beginning next Sunday. This is simply an introduction this morning, but I believe this is very important. There are some things that we need to understand before we move into this book. In fact, there are six key points of introduction that we need to deal with. These are the typical things that we need to know about really any book of the Bible before we begin to go through it. The first one is exactly what we began with, which is the division, the division. Although our focus this summer is going to be on 1 Samuel, we need to begin by looking at the whole chicken, so to speak. The truth of the matter is 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. The earliest Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts made no division between these two books. They simply entitled the whole collection as Samuel. But later on, the translators of the Greek version of the Bible, the Septuagint, divided this one book into two. The Latin Vulgate continued this pattern, as well as most English translations and most modern Hebrew translations. So we now have 1st and 2nd Samuel in our Bible. These books are, properly speaking, a continuation of the history that is recorded in the book of Judges. They give us the account of the last judge of Israel down to the first kings of Israel. In fact, in the Latin Vulgate, 1st and 2nd Samuel are the first two of four books of kings. So what should we make of all this, and how should we divide the chicken? Well, a good study of First and Second Samuel tells us how to do it. The author or editor of First and Second Samuel has placed four summary sections at key points in this massive amount of narrative material. These summaries are his division markers, if you will. They indicate the overall structure of First and Second Samuel. The summary section for the first seven chapters of First Samuel, we read a few minutes ago, is found in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. The summary section for chapters 8 through 14 is found in chapter 14, verses 47 to 52. The summary section for 1 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 8 is found in 2 Samuel 8, 15 to 18. And the summary for 2 Samuel 9 through 20 
is found in 2 Samuel 20, verses 23 to 26. And I know you didn't get all that, but that's okay. So here's how we need to divide the chicken. The first section deals with the life of Samuel. The second one deals with the reign of Saul. The third and fourth give the account of the reign of David, while chapters 21 to 24 develop the theme of the kingdom. But of course, we won't get nearly that far this summer. For our purposes this summer, we will be following the outline of Dale Ralph Davis. And here's how he divides up for Samuel. First, a prophet from God's grace, chapter 1 through 7. Second, a king in God's place, chapters 8 through 14. And then thirdly, a man after God's heart, chapters 15 to 31. Now, I really don't know how far we will get this summer. We probably will not get to the reign of David, but hopefully we'll get to the first two. And one very interesting thing about the treatment of the life of Saul in 1 Samuel is the fact that after having related a few facts connected to the beginning of Saul's reign, this historian jumps over 20 to 30 years of his life to relate some incidents that occurred in the last quarter of his reign, highlighting God's rejection of him and focusing instead on the man after God's own heart. So you can already see where this is going. This hopefully answers the question of division. But we need to move on, secondly, to the issue of the delineation. Who is the author of this book? Jewish tradition holds that Samuel himself is the author of First and Second Samuel. But obviously, that would be difficult to believe since much of what is described in these two books are after his death. His death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, which is long before the events of David's reign. Some have attributed this to Samuel, to Nathan, to Gad, based on 1 Chronicles 29, 29. This is what it says there. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. And so some take this as a compilation of really three authors here, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. Of course, Nathan and Gad were prophets during the reign of David. So these two men could have at least provided some written resource material for these two books. In fact, Bible scholars point to seven different sources for this book. First of all, the book of Jasher, referred to in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, part of the book refers to uh, some of the Psalms of David. 
Uh, then we have the Chronicles of King David. Fourth, we have the book of Samuel the seer. Then we have the book of Nathan the prophet. Then we have the book of Gad the seer. But in addition to that, we also have a collection of national uh, genealogies. And so we see number of sources for this book. The bottom line, folks, is we really don't know who wrote or edited this book. In a lot of ways, this is very similar to the book of Hebrews. Of course, we are convinced that this is Scripture, so it is understood as from the Holy Spirit, ultimately. And in this sense, we would see this as a word from God himself. Scholars have speculated as to who the compiler was. Some of the most learned among the Jews have assigned it to Jeremiah the prophet. Others have attributed this to David, uh, to Hezekiah, or to Ezra. And again, we really don't know. As far as the human author is concerned, it is anonymous. The title, Samuel probably has less to do with who wrote it and more to do with the fact that Samuel is the first prominent character in these two books and the one who poured the anointing oil on the first kings of Israel. Really, Samuel stands almost as large as Moses in the history of Israel. It is not too much to say that Whereas Moses was the founder of the Jewish nation, Samuel was the one who organized and developed it into a true political power and enriched it with institutions that made it capable of taking its place among the nations. And of course, this was all accomplished by the sovereign providence of God in raising him up for such a time as this in the history of his people. It was during this time that the prophets became the custodians of the literature of Israel. In the book of Chronicles, where you find that list of authors, most of them were prophets or seers. This is because Samuel established a number of prophet colleges where such written material was gathered. Many of these writings were on tablets of metal. Others were on skins of animals, such as in the days of Isaiah. But this explains why most of the accounts here are brief and were complete in and of themselves. One author writes, we may safely conclude that the Acts of Samuel, of Nathan, and of Gad, and even the chronicles of King David were not well-digested histories, but a series of brief stories complete in itself. As we go through, you'll see how it is written that way. None of this, of course, makes 1 Samuel any less inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We can trust it explicitly, even though we don't know who the human author or editor is thirdly we need to ask about the date the date when was this book written 
Although we can't be certain of the exact date, we know that it was written after the division of the kingdom between Israel and Judah in 931 B.C. And we know that because there are several references to Israel and Judah as separate entities in this book. For example, 1 Samuel 11:8 says, And he, that is Saul, numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. There are a number of other references similar to this. In addition to that, the reference in 1 Samuel 27, 6, about Ziklag belonging to the kings of Judah to this day, gives clear evidence of a post-Solomonic date of writing. So, Whoever compiled these books did it after the reign of Solomon. Now, another factor to consider is the fact that First and Second Samuel were included in what was referred to as the former prophets in the Hebrew canon, along with Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Kings. These were possibly composed as a unit. Therefore, if that was the case, they would have been compiled during the Babylonian captivity between 560 and 540 B.C. However, because the books of Samuel have a very different literary style from the books of Kings, most Bible scholars see these books as having been compiled much earlier, before the period of the exile and during the time of the divided kingdom sometime between 931 and 722 B.C. Fourthly, we need to consider the duration. How many years of history does First and Second Samuel cover? Basically, 135 years of history. Most of the events described in these books occurred around the central highlands of the land of Israel. This was a concentrated area that ran about 90 miles from the hill country of Ephraim in the north to the hill country of Judah in the south. MacArthur says this central spine ranges in height from 1,500 feet to 3,300 feet above sea level. The major cities of First and Second Samuel were located in these central highlands. Shiloh, the residence of Eli and the tabernacle. Ramah, the hometown of Samuel. Gibeah, the headquarters of Saul. Bethlehem, the birthplace of David. Hebron, David's capital, where he ruled over Israel, where he ruled over Judah, excuse me, and Jerusalem, the ultimate city of David. The events of First and Second Samuel occurred between 1105 B.C. and 971 B.C. from the birth of Samuel to the last words of King David. The most significant advancement of the nation of Israel during this time period was to move beyond the 
loosely knit group of tribes that you see during the period of the judges to a centralized monarchy. 1 Samuel begins at a very low point spiritually. The priesthood has become corrupt. Idolatry has become rampant. The Ark of the Covenant is not in the tabernacle of God. The many, uh, many of the judges had been dishonest and inconsistent with the things of the Lord. One author writes, The 300 or so years of the history of Israel under the judges was marked by political, moral, and spiritual anarchy and deterioration. The situation was so pervasive that even the sons of Eli, the high priest at the end of the 12th century, had completely apostatized and had used their priestly office for their own gain and licentious pursuits. The period of the judges marked some very dark days spiritually, which were characterized by the words, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Instead of developing and realizing the grand ideal which their lawgiver had envisioned, they perpetually sank lower and lower. One author says, in the narrative contained in the book of Judges, we find them wild, rough, lawless, cruel, with atrocious barbarity. The priests and Levites appear powerless and apathetic. The judges have been brave soldiers, but have had little administrative capacity. However, through the influence of godly Samuel, all of this was reversed. Just when it seemed that the nation would cave in on its own rottenness, God intervened. And in response to godly Hannah's prayers, gave to Israel young Samuel, who made a huge difference. It was Samuel who arrested Israel's spiritual decay and put the nation of Israel on the pathway of upward development. It was Samuel who set the stage for the greatest king to ever rule in Israel. And by the end of the reign of David, the anger of the Lord had turned away from Israel. We read in 2 Samuel 24:25, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And thus the Lord was moved by entreaty for the lands, and the plague was held back from Israel. For the time being, the judgment of God against the sins of the people was abated. And really, you could call these the golden years in the history of Israel. Politically, the great empires of the world had become weak, so neither Egypt nor Mesopotamia, Babylon nor Assyria were really a threat to Israel during this time. The greatest enemies of 
The people were the Philistines and the Ammonites. But as we will see, the Philistines were a serious threat because they had mastered the use of iron weapons, which gave them a decisive military and economic advantage. In fact, because of this, there may have never been a time when things seemed so hopeless as when Samuel arose. The Philistines, who were not only strengthened by a constant influx of immigrants, but also by the import of iron weapons from Greece, made Israel's armies nearly um, impotent. Samson may have been able to, by the supernatural power of God, slay heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, but the soldiers of Israel were overmatched by the Philistine armies with coats of mail and iron shields and helmets, along with swords and spears. But just when it seemed that all hope was lost, Samuel came upon the scene. And God raised up this incredibly godly man to turn the tide. It was from its deepest fall that Samuel raised the nation to to, to new life. And from its shattered ruins, built it up into an orderly and progressive kingdom. Significantly, the foundation of such radical transformation was the restoration of the spiritual and religious life of the people. He didn't start by building up the army. He dealt with the spiritual condition of the people. It was through genuine revival and renewal that all this became possible. And by the way, that indicates an important application for us as well. What we need most in America today is not some sort of change in policies or laws. It is genuine spiritual renewal. And that begins in the church. It begins with us. We need godly leaders like Samuel to step up and lead God's people to follow His truth. We need courageous men to lead the people of God to genuine spiritual renewal and revival. And there's an interesting element here to what Samuel was able to accomplish that most people are not even aware of. One of the key aspects of this renewal in Israel came because of what we would call public education. And of course, in Israel, it was not secular public education, but public education centered on theological teaching. But Samuel was the first to establish schools in Israel. One commentator explains that in the Naoth, or students' lodgings near Ramah, Samuel gathered young men who would lead Israel from its spiritual debasement. In these schools, they taught reading and writing and music. They were called schools of the prophets, not only because 
Samuel himself was a prophet, but also because the young men trained there were trained specifically for the service of Yahweh. And I think this says much to us today about the value of Christian education and the value of raising up future leaders and training them to embrace God's truth in such a way that they will lead others to genuine faith in God. The prophets that were raised up in Israel were used of God to challenge the people spiritually, and they at least slowed down the spread of idolatry in Israel. In fact, we would have to say that the influence of these prophets impacted the whole world. And even today, we benefit from their writings. Both the Old Testament and New Testament eras were impacted by Samuel's schools. As one author put it, the noble tree which he had planted was still vigorous when our Lord Jesus traveled the land of Israel. It was Samuel who planted the seeds of spiritual fruit that would lead to the ministry of the prophets and later the scribes in Israel. It was the foundation of education that Samuel planted that enabled the Jews both to read and write the Scriptures. This is what enabled the translation of the Bible into the Greek language. And significantly, it was this foundation that led to the missionary age of the New Testament where the gospel of Jesus Christ was spread all throughout the world. Amazingly, we would have to say that we are still being impacted by the foundation that was laid by this godly man. And when we read the writings of the Old Testament prophets, we are benefiting from the legacy of Samuel. Of course, the other great accomplishment of Samuel was in the establishment of the kingdom in Israel. And although this was initially resisted in favor of remaining a theocracy, it was ultimately very instrumental in the establishment of the nation. Israel's monarchy was unique in that it was a limited constitutional monarchy. And it was unique in that it was still ruled by God. As one commentator put it, the theocracy which Samuel endeavored to establish was that of a kingly power in the hands of a man, but acting in obedience to the written law of God or to his will as declared from time to time by the living voice of prophecy. It was a monarchy that was limited by the priest and the prophet, the former taking his stand on the Mosaic law and the latter through the proclamation of God's commands, but both appealing to the moral and spiritual values of the king and the people as a whole. So this was a unique monarchy. This is the historical background of our study we can begin to see the significance of it even for our day and time as we prepare to move into the text. This was a critical time 
for God's people and for His redemptive work in the world. Well, this leads us, fifthly, to the doctrine. The doctrine. As is always true of biblical history, we should see the accounts given not as merely recounting specific events, but as theological teaching. (coughs) These events should never be divorced from the purposes and plans of God. So what are the theological themes that we see featured in this book? One of the most important is the Davidic covenant. That covenant is extremely important, not only to Israel, but to Christians as well. And if you look at First and Second Samuel, you see that there are uh, these two books are literally framed by two references to God's anointed king. The first one comes in Hannah's prayer in First Samuel two verse ten, which says, "Those who contend with the Lord." will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. That's the first frame on one end. The second part of the frame is found at the very end of Second Samuel. In Second Samuel twenty two fifty one we read He, the Lord, is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, whether it is apparent at first glance or not, these are both references to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the king who will ultimately triumph over the nations that are opposed to God. The Davidic covenant has to do with the promise that Messiah would come through the line of David and that he would establish David's throne forever. In fact, turn with me to 2 Samuel 7 for just a moment. 2 Samuel 7. Here is where we see the Davidic covenant recorded. 2 Samuel 7, and look with me at verse 12. Verse 12. God is speaking to David, and he says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus Christ is the greater son of David. He is the promised descendant who would come after David, the one who would ultimately rule and reign forever. 
So we clearly see the theme of the Davidic covenant, and we'll see these in much more detail when we get to them. But all of that, of course, was done for our own benefit. Another theme that is prominent in this book is the sovereignty of God. Over and over again, we will see where God is at work in his mighty providence, accomplishing his own purposes in and through his people. And of course, this is something that is still very important for Christians today. We need to cling to always the sovereignty of God. Sometimes it appears as if this world is spinning out of control, but I promise you it is all in the control of our sovereign God. And as we go through this book, we will be reminded over and over again of this truth. Thirdly, we will see the theme of the Holy Spirit working to empower certain chosen individuals to accomplish God's will. We will see that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon both Saul and David after they are anointed as king in Israel. The Spirit of God will enable the understanding of prophecy and will provide victory in battle. And so we'll develop that theme as we go through this book. Fourthly, we see the theological principle of the negative effects of sin. And we will see this both on an individual basis and on the scale of national consequences. We'll see it in the sin of Eli, which resulted in the death of his sons. We'll see it in a lack of respect for the ark of God, which led to the death of a number of Israelites. We'll see it in the life of Saul's disobedience, which led to the Lord's judgment and his being rejected as king over Israel. We'll see it in the life of David, which led to the death of a son and other tragic consequences. Fifthly, we will see in this book the power of prayer. First Samuel opens with the subject of prayer, and Second Samuel closes with the subject of prayer. And as J. Vernon McGee puts it, there is a great deal of prayer in between. So we're going to see the emphasis on prayer. Well, these are just a few of the theological themes that we're going to discover in this study. But I want to move finally to the difficulties. The difficulties. What are the interpretive problems that we're going to encounter in this study? One issue is the role of the Holy Spirit before his coming on the day of Pentecost. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is clearly seen in 1st and 2nd Samuel, but it is not the same as it is for New Testament believers. We do not see the work of the Holy Spirit here in the sense of providing salvation and spiritual regeneration. Instead, we see his role as providing temporary enabling for God's chosen leaders. In 1 Samuel 16, if we get that far, we will have to wrestle with the meaning of the distressing spirit from the Lord, which came on Saul. 
Does that refer to a demon? To a spirit of discontent created by God in the heart of Saul? Or to something else? And I'm not going to answer that this morning. We'll have to wait till we get to it in our study. Another difficult passage that we will need to wrestle with is the account of Saul appearing before the witch at Endor. And the question that is always debated is, how did Samuel appear in 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 5, when he was summoned up by the medium? Was it literally Samuel who appeared, or was it some other form, such as a demon, etc.? And again, we'll deal with that when we get to it. I don't know if we'll get that far this summer. Maybe it'll be next summer. Finally, there is an issue here related to the preservation of the manuscripts of First and Second Samuel. The scholarly view in modern times is that the surviving ancient manuscripts were very poorly preserved, and this has caused some to doubt their reliability. What should be our response to that viewpoint? I think John MacArthur is right on target when he writes, given the challenges involved in hand copying and preserving scrolls, it is a wonder that we have the ancient documents that we do have. Our attitude ought to lean more toward amazement that we have such few discrepancies rather than toward concern over the ones that puzzle and challenge us. Of course, the science of textual criticism is involved in analyzing the ancient manuscripts and discovering discrepancies created by copy errors. And when the books of First and Second Samuel are analyzed, the typical errors are found that commonly appear in handwritten documents. For example, when two lines of text end with the same word or words, the eye of the copyist naturally tends to skip the second line. And this sometimes results in this line being deleted entirely. However, when multiple manuscripts are compared with one another, these kinds of errors can be easily spotted. And in the case of First and Second Samuel, we have two manuscript families. There is the Masoretic text in the Hebrew language, and there is the Septuagint in the Greek. The Septuagint was translated by Jewish scholars around 100 B.C. And when you compare these two text families, the interesting thing is that there are more differences in the books of First and Second Samuel than in any other books of the Old Testament. This is why it's been called into question. There are several disagreements, for example, when it comes to numbers in particular. MacArthur says, in settling these discrepancies, the age and language of the Masoretic text is generally considered a closer version of the original manuscript unless grammar and context 
indicate a copying error. So we'll see some of these discrepancies in the text as we go through this study. But of course, that in no way hinders the reliability of these books. In fact, no doctrine of Scripture is ever threatened by any copy error. And virtually all of them have been discovered and corrected in our modern English translations. So we have no reason whatsoever to question anything in this book or in any book of the Bible. Well, enough about chickens, background information, and introductions. There's a woman weeping in Shiloh. We'll see her story next time. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you help us just to grasp the background of this book, to, to understand as we go into it why it is so important. And Lord, we pray that you will help us throughout this summer as we go through this study, that we might rightly divide your word, that we might properly understand it, that we would understand it in its historical context, and that we would understand the original intent of its meaning, that we might rightly apply it to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you will help us in this. Give us your wisdom in it. Lord, as always, we ask that if there are any here today that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray they would come to know you that they would come to understand not only is your word absolutely reliable, but that your gospel is totally by grace and that uh, it is available to all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that all of us as believers, that we might be firmly grounded in the truth of your word and that we might uh, be um, firmly committed to accomplishing your purposes as your people. Lord, we pray that we would respond even to this introduction today uh, in such a way that would honor you and please you. So, Lord, uh, now we ask that you would be with us as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And, Lord, that uh, you would just help us again to understand all you've done on our behalf and in gratitude to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.